Uh, join me as we arise this morning to read from our sermon text. In the book of Daniel, chapter 5 is where we find ourselves as we continue our ongoing morning studies uh, through this old prophet. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, I, I would encourage you to uh, grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, nearby you. You'll find this morning's text on page 724. Uh, we're going to look at all of chapter 5 uh, along the way in our time together this morning. I do, however, just want to read the first 12 verses uh, to give you a sense of where this passage goes, and then I'll pray for our study and we'll uh, continue on together. So listen now as God does speak to you through his perfect word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, and he declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a golden chain around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we ask that you would give us life according to your word. Your word we know is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Our Father, we are your servants. Do give us understanding this day that we may know your truth. Truth is it's found in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure it's true of every seminary student that if you ask them to speak about their favorite professor or professor who had a particular influence on them, 
Now, they could tell you and regale you with stories for a number of hours because every seminary student seems to have a, a professor that had a unique influence on their life and one such seminary professor in my life in years past. He's a church historian that's something of an expert in a missionary to Ireland that you may have heard of, a man named St. Patrick. And he was such a Patrick fanatic that he would give us in various seminars readings of Patrick, books about Patrick, discussions that we had to enjoy about Patrick. And one of the writings that he gave us about Patrick uh, told the story of a rather eventful Easter in that missionary's life. It was common at that time in Ireland in the early 5th century that what Christians would do the Saturday night before Easter is they would light a gigantic bonfire. And it was meant to commemorate, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he is the light of the world. Now, at this time in space, uh, Patrick was in an area that was ruled by a, a local Druid king. who He didn't like the bonfires. He had outlawed them, said, if you light any of those bonfires in the name of Jesus Christ, you're going you're gonna to die as a result. Well, here comes Patrick one Saturday night, and he, of course, lights a bonfire the, the night before Easter, and you could see it far and wide. So not surprisingly then, he, he's called into the king's court, and he's made to give an account for his actions, and And Patrick, ever so bold and brave, he doesn't back down from the king. And instead, he actually stands up quite strong and he says, You, O king, if you don't believe this night, you will die because the wrath of God is upon you. And as the story goes in the advance of the gospel in Ireland, uh, the king actually humbled his heart before that warning from the Lord. And it was in a very short time after that that the gospel began to basically fan into the rest of Ireland, like a a flame lit up by the Lord. Now that king was frozen in fear, and he responded with humility. What we're looking at this morning in Daniel chapter 5 is another king who is genuinely frozen in fear, but you're not going to find humility in this man. In fact, the reason why he's going to freeze in fear is because there's no humility to be found in this man. Uh, Much like we saw in recent weeks in Daniel chapter 4, the question that's going to be before us today is, will you humble your heart before the Lord? Perhaps even a better way of asking the same question is, have you humbled your heart before the Lord? Because you might remember where we left off in our study of Daniel two weeks ago. We had this scene, didn't we, in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the man who ruled over Babylon for 44 years, the man who was the most powerful leader and military general in the known world, who had built up Babylon into a fortress that was understood to be impregnable and unsurmountable. Uh, He was exalted in his pride, and what did the Lord do? He came and humbled humbled Nebuchadnezzar to such a point, if you just glance back to verse 33 of chapter 4, remember that he basically became like an animal. As immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, the text says, and he was driven from among men, he ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He's eventually restored, you see that in the next few verses. And that final phrase before our text today, it finds Nebuchadnezzar saying simply there, notice the end of verse 37 in chapter 4, those who walk in pride, he, that is Yahweh, he is able to humble. And if you know the, the Bible's story well, you know that the actual truth is even more basic, perhaps even more pointed than that. 
Because it's not just true for us to say that the Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. Uh, The more essential point for us to see this morning is the Lord will humble those who walk in pride. And he can do it in a variety of different ways. Of course, it's even with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar got the chance to respond in humility. The Lord's discipline, the Lord's chastisement came to Nebuchadnezzar in such a way that he would respond with humility by the end of chapter 4. But now for a generation or a couple removed from Nebuchadnezzar, we meet this king named Belshazzar, and he's not going to have a chance to respond in humility. Judgment's going to fall upon him, swift, certain, and altogether sudden. The Lord will humble the proud. So the question is, again, before you today, have you, have you humbled your heart before the Lord? What kind of writing is going to belong on the wall of your heart? Because that's the theme that we see in this memorable text before us. It's this writing on the wall, and I want you to see the words there on the wall before we think about the witness from the wall. So, so the words on the wall, look again. Uh, the occasion in verse 1 of chapter 5 is simply this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And depending on how you date these things, something like at least 20 years, and it's probably closer to 30 years, has passed since the closing of chapter 4 into the introduction of chapter 5. There's a new leader in the land, a couple generations removed from Nebuchadnezzar, is this man named Belshazzar, who fancies himself as a great party thrower. A thousand of his lords gathered around him to get drunk. You see also, it wasn't just the lords, verse 2 and 3 emphasize wives and, and concubines. Certainly servants would have been around too. It's a rather large party there in that fortress known as as Babylon. Uh, Several weeks ago, I had the chance to reconnect with an old friend. Uh, We had grown up together, and after about 20 years of callings in life, and frankly, the generalities of life just sending us in in two different ways, uh, we sat down, and uh, he began to tell me about the Lord's work in his life in the last 20 years uh, he was uh, a man now that I, I knew as, as a young boy and eventually as, as a growing man growing up in the church. His dad was a devoted deacon in, in his local context. But by the time he got out of college, he decided in an entrepreneurial sense that he was going to become a party planner. And he actually became quite good at it. So good, in fact, that most of the parties he would throw uh, found him uh, receiving a six-figure check for his leadership in the parties that if you asked him... Uh, promoted no small amount of sin and iniquity. And then he be re- began to recount the story of the Lord saving him and, and converting his heart and bringing him out of that kind of iniquity. But even his party planning prowess, of course, would have nothing on Belshazzar in our text. And I want you to see that uh, the king's pride is clear in the first four verses in three different ways. Uh, You see, first of all, his pride is actually found in verse 1 in a subtle way, and it's the pride of presumption. Because what we find out later on in this chapter is that the city of Babylon there, it's surrounded. It's actually under siege, history tells us, in this moment from the Medo-Persian armies. And instead of Belshazzar acting like a military leader that he was, dealing with military matters, he said, eh, it's fine for us to throw a feast. Let's have a festival. Let's get drunk on the fermented grape because there's nothing to worry about. And it's probably because, him thinking there was nothing to worry about, probably because he had fallen into this mythology that belonged to Babylon at the time that understood that it was utterly invincible. 
Kids, you can think about ancient Babylon. Perhaps you've even had a, a reason to study it in school. Uh, part of its invincibility what was attached to the walls that it had there, walls that were said to stretch 300 feet into the sky, 80 feet wide. Uh, so, so large were these walls that it was said you could take four chariots and put them side by side on the top of the wall, and they could race down to the end, turn around and U-turn, and make it all the way back. So impregnable was this fortress. They had so much stored up and so many natural resources already present in the city, they believed that they could survive any siege. So the Medo-Persian army, the greatest opponents and competitors to Babylon at this time, are at the city's gates. And Belshazzar says, eh, no worries. Bring out the wine. Everything is okay. So there's a pride in the presumption. You notice in verse 2, there's a, there's a pride also in the proclamation. He tastes the wine and we're told that he commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought. Kings, lords, wives, concubines might drink from them. Uh, students, you might remember that we've, we've heard something about these holy vessels from the holy temple in the holy city of Jerusalem earlier on in this book. Vessels that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked Jerusalem so many uh, decades before. And, and these were vessels that Belshazzar would have known uh, were, were devoted to the worship of Yahweh. They were holy vessels that were uh, meant to be part of holy worship to the Lord. But he means to, to bring them out, to let them become utensils for his debauchery, which was an ancient Near Eastern way of mocking the God over those vessels. It was an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, uh, we have defeated this king, this God named Yahweh. Bring out the cups and let us drink accordingly. So there's pride in his presumption. Everything's safe, even in the midst of the siege. There's pride in the proclamation. We've defeated Yahweh. Let's mock him in our sinfulness. But there's also pride in the praise. Notice verse 4. They bring out the utensils and they drank the wine. They praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Uh, praising the idols that Daniel's going to soon say, have nothing within them by way of power. They're dead, they're deaf, they're dumb. And actually more striking, although I think to me, is the intentionality of the materials that are praised here in these gods. Because students, can you think of any time to this point in Daniel, well, we've heard about bronze, gold, silver, iron, wood, and stone. It actually stretches back to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare. You might remember there, he, he saw this in his nightmare, this tower, this colossus-like figure made out of these materials. And Daniel comes along and interprets that dream to say, well, that tower is nothing more than the communication that one kingdom is going to pass to the next. Uh, Daniel interprets the dream to declare that tower tells you that there is one kingdom that will rule over all kingdoms. Because that stone that was cut, not with human hands, that smashes the Colossus, that points to the king who is coming, who will rule over all kingdoms. And it seems to almost be this not-so-subtle illusion in Belshazzar's mind to say, yes, I've heard about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Surely he would have. And let's now praise these gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, wood, these things that the Lord says are going to pass away as he says, I have supremacy, I have sovereignty, look at me, drink, is what he says. So there's pride all over the passage. And I wonder if uh, pride 
may have been all over your life this week. Perhaps you can think back with sincerity and and honesty and think about the ways in which, in a similar way, pride ran rampant in your life. Maybe it was presumption upon your own wisdom and strength to meet a problem you were facing. Maybe it's proclaiming something good that God's word clearly says is sinful. Maybe it's the praise of false gods in this world, the praise of things that have been created rather than the creator itself. And I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you've perhaps been in an event maybe like this or you've been around uh, people that, that are so manifestly sinning, so, so manifestly uh, doing things that the Lord clearly commands ought not to be done. That you almost think in your own mind and maybe even say out loud, I need to, I need to step away lest a lightning strike from heaven and judgment upon this scene. But there's a lightning strike of God's revelation, isn't there, that shows up. Notice immediately, verse 5, we're told, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So you can picture them, him in the palace there, can't you? He's there himself, plastered at the moment, looking across the room and on the plaster of the wall, kids, you can imagine, just this detached hand begins to scribble on the wall. And what's interesting about verse 5 is that the author makes it quite clear, and he's very intentional to say that the writing happens opposite the lampstand. I wonder if you know anything about a lampstand in ancient Israel's history. Because the text is clearly telling us that Belshazzar, he's bringing these holy vessels that were part of temple worship in Jerusalem. He's bringing them out to use them in the desecration of this debauchery. And one of the holy vessels in the temple of Jerusalem was the lampstand. It was their burning as a sign of remembrance of God's provision and sustenance for his people. And here it is, it's now brought out. And of course, across from that lampstand is no announcement of provision or peace. It's something that absolutely terrifies Belshazzar. For look at his response, verse 6, the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his, his knees knocked together. It's a not-so-subtle way in the ancient language to say he lost control of his bodily functions. Such was the terror that struck him. And if you don't know the kind of, of terror that is a, a proper response to God's revealed word, I wonder if you've actually heard truly the reality of God's word before. For those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, those whose life has been defined by nothing more than the enjoyment of their pride, to hear God's word in the fullness of its majesty and splendor, it's the most terrifying thing you can come to know. But of course, Belshazzar knows nothing about what this word means, does he? That's why you'll see as the text continues, verse 7, he calls together all his wise men. He says, you need to tell me what the dream's all about, or I'm sorry, what this uh, wording is all about. And if you do, I'm going to make you the third most powerful person in the land. And much like it was with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in, in chapter 2, none of these wise men can do anything about the situation. And then suddenly the queen mother shows up. It's clear, isn't it, according to what we see in verse 10, that she wasn't a part of this party, maybe because of all of its iniquity. But she shows up and she says, I know who you need to talk to, Belshazzar. Look at verse 10 through 11. She says, O king, let not your thoughts alarm you. 
Let not your color change. There's a man in your kingdom and whose spirit is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light, understanding, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Call Daniel. He'll tell you what it means. And if you read through those attributes that she uh, ascribes to Daniel, it's actually quite striking that they, they have this like mirror function with Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, which in, in the same way is telling us that, that only this prophet, Daniel, only Daniel can reveal the truth. Uh, what does the Old Testament in its fullness of prophecy predict, but there's a, there's a better prophet coming, and it's only in this prophet, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that truth can be revealed, that people can know what they must know. You need to call Daniel to interpret the words on the wall. So Daniel shows up, and he's going to give us now the witness from the wall. As verse 13 tells us, Daniel was brought in before the king having dinner with some friends in the church last night, and one of the brothers mentioned how one of the peculiarities of, of Daniel is that how the time in the story passes quite rapidly with no even uh, clear acknowledgement of how many years have moved from one chapter to the next. Because depending on how you date things, it's probably best to understand that 60 years have elapsed from Daniel 1 to Daniel chapter 5. 60 years in which all Daniel has done to this point is interpret basically two dreams. And yet we still have hymns, don't we? Dare to be a Daniel. We'll see more about that right next week, Lord willing, with the lion's den. But it's striking to me as you have a man there as an exile in Babylon, as we see so often in this book, just ordinarily faithful, day in and day out. And just a couple of times in over a half century, the Lord calls him to do something significant. And don't you think that's actually probably how it ordinarily goes for most of us? Ordinary faithfulness day in and day out. And just a few times in the decades that God's going to grant to you a moment of supreme spiritual significance. But it's a moment of significance that you can only stand up for in truth and righteousness because you've been ordinarily faithful. All the other years, all the other weeks, all the other days. So Daniel shows up, of course. He hears, you'll notice, in verse 13 through 16 from the king, the, the problem that's facing him with this writing on the wall, the promised reward, you'll be the third highest ruler in my kingdom, I'll give you this great purple garment. And, and Daniel, in a way that's quite different from the way he treated Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't show up with any deference whatsoever to Belshazzar. Notice verse 17. He answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Keep your costumes in your closet, Belshazzar, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And what Daniel begins to do as the text continues is actually not give the interpretation, he gives a denunciation to Belshazzar. He recounts what we just saw two weeks before in. Daniel chapter 4, about the story of Nebuchadnezzar's exaltation in his pride and then humiliation before the Lord's sovereignty and supremacy. And you'll see the denunciation comes, verse 22 and 23. 
He says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. A famous old German philosopher by the name of Hegel once said that all we learn from reading history is that we've learned nothing from history. It's the problem, Daniel says, that belongs to Belshazzar here. You haven't learned from what you heard about Nebuchadnezzar, a prideful king that must humble himself before the Lord. It's almost as those students, what, he, what he's telling Belshazzar in so many words is, you should have known better. But you must honor and humble yourself before this God. And kids, I can imagine that there have been times in your life where perhaps you've done something you ought not do. And your, your parents, maybe your mom or dad said, well, you should have known better. Could you be sitting here today and the Spirit might be telling you even in this moment, you should know better than to remain in that pride. Maybe you've known stories of God's surprising and supernatural sovereign grace in converting one of your parents. Maybe it's a sibling or a friend, and you hear about his amazing testimony of salvation in Jesus Christ, and you think, not for me. I want to do my own thing. Some of you might even been here today, and you've grown up in good gospel preaching churches. Week in and week out, you've heard the truth over And over and over, you should know better, but you continue to stoke and serve your own pride, not humbling yourself before the Lord. Even in God's own providence in this church, a number of weeks in a row, three weeks now to count, we've heard week after week, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But maybe you let pride run rampant in your life this week. You should know better. And so what he says, notice verse 24, the witness from the wall is coming. It's from God's presence that the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And so finally, at the very end, we get to figure out what the whole mysterious saying on the wall is. Notice verse 25 through 28. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Daniel gives the interpretation. The interpretation of the matter is this. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and the balances and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar, the Lord has weighed you. He's found you utterly wanting in your pride. So you are coming to an end and your kingdom as well. That's the simple witness from writing on a wall. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that you can sympathize with with many people having a not-so-great relationship with weight scales. You know, jumping on a scale and and trembling with some degree about what it's going to reveal. You know, I actually had an experience of that years ago in my life. I was playing on a soccer team, and uh, the manager at the time, it was an early adopter of analytics that 
have seemingly taken over every major sport in the world at the time. And uh, one of the consequences of his analytical approach is that you were made to do a daily weigh-in when you showed up for training. And of course, if you were within the proper weight range for your own performance, everything was good. But if you showed up and you were not where you should be, you faced the coming wrath of a, a rather vengeful manager at the time. And it's true, isn't it, that probably the most simple reality that you must see from this writing on the wall is weight, is, is scale-like language. The words there, just mene, mene, and tekel, parson, they're just different words in Aramaic for weights. And what you need to see along the way at the end today is that you will be weighed one day by the Lord. And you should tremble at what that scale would show. We don't have to tremble. Because I want to show you the good news before you do hear the bad news of this passage. Certainly the good news is you can be weighed and comforted. You can be weighed and comforted. Because those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have humbled themselves before him, the weight of God's eternal revelation upon you is nothing more than a weight that promises comfort. The reason we know that is because look at what happens in verse 31. That very night, Darius the Mede, he received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That kingdom of gold, as God said would happen, has now given way to the kingdom of silver. That God's purpose has come to pass. His promise is fulfilled. That you might look out on the world today and recognize that no small number of God's people throughout the nations are, are opposed by prideful rulers. Arrogant enemies encompassing God's people all around. But this is a book, isn't it, we've said, that are written to sojourners and exiles who long to be faithful to the Lord. And if you've come to Jesus Christ and are part of his coming kingdom... Of course, you know that deliverance is not just on the way, as the exiles in Daniel's time were learning, but deliverance is here in Jesus Christ. That, that kingdom that is a stone that shatters all other kingdoms, it's already come. So when pride surrounds you, when enemies encompass you, when arrogance seems to press you in from all sides, outside of you, it take comfort that if you've come to Jesus Christ, you'll be weighed, and you can be comforted that he, of course, has taken the destruction that belongs to you. But I suppose, and certainly what I want you to feel most, is the second reality, because it presses the heart most uniquely today, is that you're going to be weighed, and you may be comforted. But there's also the weight of conviction. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. He didn't get the chance, did he? To humble himself before the Lord. How many people will wake up this day not realizing that tonight the Lord's going to require their soul? That's even what the Lord Jesus Christ seems to say in his parable of the rich fool that actually has so many echoes to Daniel chapter 5. He says there's this rich fool who gathered up all of his resources and riches and he stored them and stashed them away just eating and drinking and being merry with no care or concern in the world. Here we have a king, what? Eating, drinking, being merry, but with no concern in the world. And Jesus cries out in the conclusion to that parable, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. 
Do you not know that this night your soul may be required of you? But the good news is that it's not the story of Belshazzar for you. He had no chance, did he, to humble himself. He was past the point of turning back. You're not past the point of turning back. As the Lord says to prideful sinners like you, whom he would place on his weight scale and you would be found wanting in your sin. He says, I've placed my son on that same scale. I've weighed him at Calvary and found him perfect. So that sinners like you might know the conviction of sin. And even this day, the comfort of his salvation. You're going to be weighed. What will be the writing found on your heart? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your justice and your revelation, your kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Forbearance in the midst of our pride that shows us you still speak words of life to us. Lord, we want to be weighed and be found worthy. And we know we can be according to your son, Jesus Christ. So let us look to him this day looking to him for the salvation and deliverance that he alone can provide. And we do pray it in his precious name. Amen.